Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that holds your hand on the journey through Swedish history. I'm Elsa. And I'm not Elsa. <laughs> no, you're Chris, but what episode is this? This is episode 69, The Road to Kalmar. In this episode, we will cover what happens as we approach a pivotal event in Swedish medieval history, named after the town where this event takes place. So that's a bit of a spoiler. But first, let's look at our Swedish phrase of the week. Yes, this week's phrase is dra åt tumskruvarna, which translates directly to English as to pull the thumbscrews tight. Sounds a bit like torture. Well, that's because it actually is. Uh, it means to put pressure on someone, but the origin of the phrase is an instrument known as a tumskruv, or a thumbscrew. We'll try and put a picture of it on our social media when we release this episode so you can see exactly what it is we're talking about. But basically, it's two pieces of metal, like two plates with screws on either side, and as you tighten the screws, the plates were pushed together to crush someone's thumbs or fingers. So the idea was to put people's thumbs between these plates and tighten them, literally pulling the thumb screws, and their thumb would be crushed between the plates, thereby hurting them, of course, and pressuring them to say or confess or sign up to something or basically do what you want them to do. I see. It sounds excruciatingly painful. Good thing torture was outlawed in Sweden in 1772, and since then I suppose the phrase has taken on the figurative meaning it has today. Yeah, so the phrase went from something a king would order someone to do to being something a bit more figurative. Uh, people aren't ordering people to go grab these metal thumbscrews, but they're getting someone to put pressure on someone or something else. So even though we're referring to an old instrument of torture, we're not actually referring to torture itself. We also have a very similar phrase in English called put the screws on or to someone. Exactly the same concept and exactly the same origin, really. It's probably just as popular elsewhere as in Sweden then. Speaking of things in the past, it is time to return back to the past and remind ourselves of where we left our chronological journey last time. Well, we finished the last episode in the autumn of 1395, after Margareta's forces had captured King Albert and his son Eric after the Battle of Orsla. They had spent six years in prison in Lindholm and Castle down in Skorna after this battle. After several failed attempts and lots of toing and froing between Margareta's Sweden-Denmark-Norway team and the Mecklenburg side, who were still holding on to Stockholm, and the Hansa, who were annoyed with being caught up in the middle of all this and seeing their trade being targeted by state-supported pirates, a ceasefire was finally signed in July of 1395. Albert was released and Stockholm was handed over to the Hansa for a transition caretaker period, but would be handed to Margareta in three years' time unless Albert managed to rustle up and pay an essentially unattainable huge sum of money for it. He would also lose his title of king if he refused to pay, and because the money was so much, it was extremely unlikely that he would be able to pay. The parties involved, all three sides of this, were going to cease supporting all the pirates that had been plaguing the Baltic Sea and changing sides and basically, you know, doing what they want. I think you were saying pirates going to pirate a lot in the last episode or so. Indeed. I mean, I think we can establish that as a fact. So Albert is free and back in Mecklenburg. Margareta is in charge of Sweden, Norway and Denmark. 
and the pirates are gone. Or are they? Well, we'll see about that. Because whilst Margareta has been in charge of ruling Sweden, Denmark and Norway for the past six years, being proclaimed rightful husband and master along with the other various titles she has, her future is still not quite secure. It's one thing that she holds the power right now, but what about in the years to come? Albert's release from prison presented a problem for Margareta. Whilst he would almost certainly have to formally give up the crown in the near future, the terms of the ceasefire still left the Mecklenburg claim to the throne, both in Sweden and Denmark, a bit open-ended. There were no guarantees that they wouldn't return at some point, and remember, they still do have a lot of those pesky pirates to call on in their phone book. Yes, and Margareta, being the astute political leader she was, realises that she needs to close the door for the Mecklenburgs once and for all and really cement her power over the Nordic kingdoms with her own dynasty. It was time to secure the order of succession. In episode 66 and 67, we talked about how, following the death of her son Olaf, through whom Margareta originally held the claim to the throne of these Nordic countries, she had adopted her great-nephew Bogoslav from Pomerania and renamed him Eric because Norway wanted to know who the heir would be and they didn't like Bogoslav as a name. Well, Eric was only a child when he came to Scandinavia in 1388. He's grown up a bit by now, of course, as we've uh, moved on in time, so he's now about 13 years old. So he's still not really old enough to be a king by himself or have any sort of job, really, apart from maybe a chimney sweep in Victorian Britain. But Margareta hasn't got the luxury of being able to wait much longer. No, she feels the Mecklenburgs breathing down her neck, still eyeing the various thrones, and she needs to make sure that it is made clear that not only is that power currently held by her, but also that someone from her family will be on those thrones for the foreseeable future. And well, if that someone happens to be a teenager, well, that's all she's got at the moment. And let's be fair, it hasn't stopped anyone previously in Scandinavian history putting children and teenagers on the throne. Definitely, and we saw how she had to go through her family tree for quite a while to find this one link anyway. After all, young Eric won't be expected to actually do much right now. Margareta and the councils in the different countries will still be in charge. He just needs to be put on those thrones formally so that there's not really any doubt about who's going to be in charge in the future and no room for anyone else to make a claim and push Margareta out. Whilst Margareta has risen to extraordinary levels of power herself, especially considering she's a woman in this time, she needs someone who can actually be elected as a king, not just the rightful husband and all those other titles. So that's what she sets about doing. Remember, Erik is already king of Norway and has been so since 1392. That's because Norway, unlike Sweden and Denmark, is a hereditary monarchy, and since he was the only male left in the dynastic line, he was made king as soon as Margareta adopted him. In Sweden and Denmark it's slightly different. These are technically still elected kingdoms, even though, as we know, the crown tends to be passed down within family lines and has done for generations. Eric has already been introduced to these various councils, and it's generally understood that he's the heir to the throne. Nonetheless, he was officially heralded as the Danish king by the Danish council in Viborg in early 1396. 
He's going to assume the throne when he comes of age at 15, which is just around the corner. Consequently, Margareta was soon going to hand over the throne of Denmark, which she had never officially really been on, even though she ruled. It's a bit of a messy situation. Once Eric assumes the throne, Margareta's official title in Denmark will become Daughter of Valdemar, King of the Danes. She used this title and the formality of it to her advantage several times in the years that we're going to see. Over in Sweden, Eric was elected king at Murastenar in Uppland, the traditional election place of kings that we've been to several times in our uh, chronological journey. And he was elected on the 23rd of July that same year, 1396. As per usual, it was the lawman of Uppland who presided over the event, and there were 12 representatives, one from each county in Sweden, present. All nice and legitimate. Eric is officially on the thrones of each Nordic kingdom, and very soon to be of age at 15. He's Eric III of Norway, Eric VII of Denmark, and Eric, of course, the 13th of Sweden, which we know is completely bonkers and it's not true at all. But that's what they're calling him. I mean, he might as well have been Eric the 48th of Sweden. Yeah, just invent a number. But back then he wouldn't be called Eric the 13th because this tradition uh, comes along in the future. So he would have been called Eric son or Eric, or as we'll see, something different. Yeah, because he will almost never be known as anything other than Erik of Pommern, Erik of Pomerania, referring back to the land where he was born in modern-day Germany, Poland. Yeah, even if you asked Swedish people today who was Erik the 13th, they'd say, uh, no idea, but if you say Erik of Pomerania, they at least might be able to give you an answer. Exactly, and according to an article by Magnus Vesterbro, this likely originated actually as a derogatory nickname used by his opponents who wanted to emphasize the fact that he was foreign and not actually fit to rule Sweden. Because, well, Erik is going to have some problems later in his reign that will taint his reputation as king of Sweden. But let's not go into all that now. That is way in the future and he's just a teenager now. His great-aunt Margareta will do most of the ruling for the young king for now, but she has dealt with what is one of her major worries following the ceasefire with Albert, and that was securing the order of succession. It's interesting to note how strong the crown and royal rule has gotten in the time she's been in power. A sign of this increased power is the fact that unlike his predecessors, Eric doesn't have to sign a coronation charter or oath in Sweden or Denmark. Previously, this was something that the nobility and the council had insisted on, to state limits and regulations to royal power. We saw, for example, how Albert was made to sign several of these charters and oaths, not just when he took the throne, but also many times during his reign, whenever the council got a bit annoyed with him and wanted to take away some more of his powers. But now, constitutionally, the tables have turned. During Margareta's reign, the crown has become so powerful that the nobility couldn't even start making any of these demands or set any conditions on the reign. We've seen how Margareta has moved wealth into her own hands by insisting that the lands taken from Albert and his supporters and Bouillons and Greep were transferred to her instead of back to the nobility. And she's been clear in her politics of I can bring order to the kingdom, but only if I have the power in all three lands. And which, considering the turmoil of the last 
couple of decades, most people actually agreed with this. The result was that now it was the crown that regulated the nobility and not the other way round. This was illustrated by some new legislation which dramatically limited the rights of the nobility. Yes, in Denmark, the crown issued a legislation to the nobility that had no less than 17 clauses that they would be governed by. There are two copies preserved of this legislation, one from Jutland and one from Fyn. And even though we're not a History of Denmark podcast, we think it's worth just looking at this legislation and a few of these clauses, since it gives us a good idea of Margareta's domestic politics at the time, and also of the issues that were prevalent at the time. Uh, Would you like to read out a few of these clauses? I'd love to. They're really, really interesting, actually. So, clause three... Since very little justice has come from the fortifications which have been built up until now, we forbid the building of new fortifications or castles in order to restore peace, law and order in the country. Therefore, we order the royal vassals and officials not to permit anyone to build fortifications or castles. Clause 7. We forbid all illegal harbours, for no one is allowed to have a harbour except at the towns where they have always been, and the merchants shall observe the municipal charter and not collect customs at any other place than the towns. Clause 9. Since the king of these three kingdoms has a close relationship and friendship with the Hanseatics and the merchants of all countries, men should promote and not hinder these merchants, whether they are on land or at sea. And so these three clearly show the intent to limit the power of the nobility that we're talking about, especially when we're talking about uh, not having castles and things, but it's also stopping them getting in loads of money by creating their own illegal harbours, which sounds like a really cool thing. I mean, I don't think you can create an illegal harbour nowadays. That's a very medieval thing, but that's really interesting that they are not really allowed to compete with the crown on any of these uh, political power or economic lines, and you really have to toe the line that Margareta and the the kingdom was setting out. Exactly, and Margareta is severely curtailing the nobility's room for acting independently. In the same legislation, there are also examples that give us an indication of just what some of the problems of running a just and effective state in the Nordic kingdoms were like in the late 1300s. Uh, It's not an enviable job because clause 15 reads, it is forbidden to receive money when sentencing a crime. The judge must only pass sentence. Pass sentence, not taking loads of bribes. Which I think would probably be uh, an applicable law in many modern-day countries today, but uh, it shows you not a lot of things have changed in many places. No, true, but but they have to put that clause in, that clause 15 that basically just says, stop taking bribes and hand out sentences. That's your job. Yeah, so this basically says that the it indicates that at least some parts of these Nordic kingdoms were far from stable and secure, governed by the rule of law. Yeah, quarrels and disagreements often turned violent in every sector of society. We read about an incident that took place around this time. Again, it's actually in Denmark, but we think it illustrates what it was like in the Nordic countries. As late as 1399, violent incidents could still occur. 
In accordance with an order from the Queen, i.e. Margareta, the bishops of Jutland assembled in the cathedral of Aarhus in order to mediate in a quarrel between the bishop of Berglum and the bishop of Viboy. When the case appeared to be proceeding to the benefit of the latter, the bishop of Berglum became enraged and called on his armed men outside the church. They broke in and attacked the priest who was in the middle of mass and at the same time threw a sword through a window into the room where the bishops were assembled. Uh, the bishop of Viboy escaped at the last moment as the men broke in and seized the document relating to the case. Not very Church of England, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not very turn the other cheek and love thy neighbour if you, uh, you know, have an army of men outside ready to basically kick your opponents behind. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine the Archbishop of York taking up uh, an argument with the Archbishop of Canterbury with sort of armed men and throwing swords through windows and things. I mean, I think that would get a lot of coverage if that happened like this today. <laughs> but yeah, you can see why Margareta wanted to limit the power of these people. Because remember, the bishops were also part of the nobility. They were wealthy and most of them had these little mini armies or at least entourages of armed men, meaning that they had the potential to cause real instability in the country. And like we said, it's not just in Denmark that Margareta is keen to put a real damper on this group. Before we get to what happens in Kalmar, there is one important event that happened before that, and along with similar reforms, like the legislation we just discussed in Denmark, they are a prerequisite for the next development. It's time to talk about land reform. It's time to talk about the Nyköping recess or Nyköping meeting. Nyköping recess sounds like a fun playtime at school. It's recess. <laughs> But yes, uh, I know that Ali, one of the presenters on our favourite podcast, Rex Factor, said that land reforms and legal reforms are sometimes the most boring parts of any monarch's reign. But land reform can be fun and violent, uh, especially if you think of the Gracchi brothers in the Roman Republic, uh, for anyone who knows that story. Yeah, true. Uh, but it is usually one of the drier topics of history. Not as dramatic as battles and not as juicy as the relationship dramas. But in this case, it is important to know what it was and how the Nyköping recess influenced medieval Nordic politics. Yes, so shortly after his election as king, Eric and Margareta head to Nyköping for a big meeting with the Council of Sweden and the Swedish nobility. The only topic on the agenda, apart from maybe lunch, was what to do with the estates and other privileges that had been handed out by King Albert or sucked up by Bouillonsen Grip. Basically, this was all part of the we're creating a blank slate and forgetting about the mess that's been going on for the last couple of decades policy and approach to a ruling that Margareta had. The agreement that was signed between the Crown, Council and Nobility includes admittance to increase the power of the Crown and its economic foundation. Most importantly, the Crown was to retake sources of income that had been moved to the nobility during the time of the Mecklenburgs. 
in practice, this means that the estates and farms, all big money-making machines that were previously owned and taxed by the crown, but had been transferred to the church or nobility during Albert's reign, were going to go back to the crown. We saw previously how this was Margareta's main aim when originally speaking to the Swedish nobles a few years before, so this is getting the official stamp of approval to something she's been thinking about for quite a while. Moreover, land and estates that had been handed out by Albert during his reign as gifts and rewards would also be taken back by the crown, meaning that people had risen up to the nobility and been knighted or things like that and been given land by Albert would have them taken away again, including their titles. If these knights really wanted to keep their knighthood, they could, they could work that out if the new king decided so, so it's an excellent way to make sure these newer knights and newer members of the nobility were actually loyal to the new king and the current system because they're saying, well, technically you can't be Sir Bjorn of Bjorn Town, but... Uh, um, if you if you give me a big hug and maybe some money, I'll let you I'll let you keep the title. And once the crown had collected back all of this land, it was going to remain the property of the crown. It wouldn't then be handed out to some new supporters or other nobility. It was going to remain crown property and taxed by the crown to guarantee that there'd be a steady source of income for the state's coffers and to help pay for all these pirates and mercenaries and other expensive things that medieval monarchs have to pay out for. The crown was asking a lot of the nobility, but Margareta managed these deliberations skillfully. To get the clerical nobility on her side, she promised large donations to the cathedrals. This made them focus less on the fact that she was taking back land from them that they had been given in rural areas. Essentially, Margareta dangled one shiny promise in front of them, distracted them, and thus got them on her side, it seems. Not all representatives of the church are pleased, um, especially Vodstena Abbey was very critical of this, and it is probably a reason why their accounts of Margareta in their annals and other writings are less favourable. This meeting at Nishaping is often overshadowed by what happens next in Kalmar because that's so huge, but it's actually an incredible success for Margareta right now. It leads to an incredible strengthening of the economic position of the crown, something that we've seen has been a problem for many rulers previously, like Magnus was spending and loaning money all over the place. He was even excommunicated by the Pope because of his debts. So Margareta is trying to avoid that. A lot of Swedish monarchs so far have had problems balancing the books. Swedish historian Erik Lernroth has characterised the recess as a crushing defeat for the Swedish nobility. It wiped out all the economic and political victories which they had gained. With one stroke, the crown recaptured the losses of half a century and thereby created a solid economic foundation. It took ruthless advantage of its legal and military position. And so yeah, that's, that's what Margareta has done. She's been winning in political and military matters and she's taken that success and transferring it to the economic sphere too. Yes, and she understands that a lot of the chaos in recent decades stemmed from the crown not being strong enough and the nobility being too strong. According to her politics, peace and stability will only be achieved through a strong crown and a weaker and loyal nobility, which are also the ones that sit on the council and then have unity within Scandinavia against outsiders. 
With the new shopping recess and her other domestic political moves, she has now secured two out of those three conditions. The unity within Scandinavia is already there in the form of a shared monarch, and it will soon be strengthened even further. Moreover, at Nyköping, it is also decided that each kingdom should elect a representative to meet with representatives of the other kingdoms and be able to negotiate other matters with them as a guarantee against future conflict within Scandinavia. So it's like a mini Scandinavian council. Yeah. A third point that is discussed at Nishaping is what to do with people who had owned land along the borders of the Scandinavian countries, but had seen their land lost to one side due to wars, or now found that their land was actually in another country and some of it was in a different country. This group of people were known as the border nobility, and they represented an important political and economic factor. You can just imagine how this would be a problem if half your farm is in Norway and half of it's in Sweden. Yeah. In general, the Nordic nobility had actually become quite mixed, especially since the time of the union between Sweden and Norway, and when Magnus was king of both, or when his son Håkon was king of Norway. Mixed marriages across these nobilities, actually kind of like today, are very common. But the constant wars that had been fought since the 1360s had had an impact, especially when you go down to the border counties of Skåne, Halland, Småland, and Västergötland down in what is now modern-day southern Sweden. Basically, to make money from their estates in this area, areas that have been ravaged by war for decades, the nobility needed to have conditions that were conducive to trade and not this war. So they, they wanted peace to actually farm and trade and catch lovely herring. Let's look at the geography of this area. Trade needed to flow along the rivers Lagan, Nissan, Ätran and Viskan from the Swedish South Västergötland and West Småland to the coastal towns in Danish Halland and Skåne to towns like Helsingborg, Laholm, Halmstad, Falkenberg and Varberg. Similarly, it needed to go from Swedish Värend in South Småland to the coast in Danish Blekinge and to towns like Ronneby and Sölvesborg, or even Åhus in Skåne. Basically, a lot needed to be moved around, and that couldn't be blocked by wars, or trade wouldn't flow. The forests in that area were still huge uh, at this time that were stopping a lot of trade, so a lot of this was having to go by sea, or as you said, along these rivers. And that meant it wasn't always simple. Central Vestiotland could trade through Lerdosa, but it would often get better deals trading up through Norwegian Bohuslän. It wasn't always the same going uh, to Denmark or to Norway. For the rural Vermland county, it was vital to be able to trade through Norway and to go up through Oslo and other coastal towns. People who lived in Sweden, which has much more inland areas with fertile farming and mining, especially compared to Norway, they made money by taking their surplus ox, cows, skins, hides, tar, iron and even butter to the Norwegian and Danish coasts, sell it and then buy what was found down there, especially the bountiful stocks of herring from Skorna and the grain that they couldn't get enough of up where they lived, and of course salt, which was super important. Exactly. Uh, the political borders didn't align with the trade borders, and this was most noticeable for the nobility, and since with their wealth came a stronger political voice, they were able to voice these concerns to the council and to the crown. But it also affected the general public, who 
just like you said, needed to take the surplus they had from their farms in the inland out to trade on the coast and vice versa. People living on the coast needed to buy products produced in the inland. Political solutions were needed to solve this. The first steps were taken at Nyköping and the process would steadily proceed in the coming years. Before we finish with the meeting in Nyköping, it's worth mentioning that Margareta personally also makes a handsome profit from it. After all, she has the power to ensure this. She got the counties of Vestergötland, Dalsland, Värmland, Östergötland, Northern Småland, Västerås, Town, Norrbull, Hergard and Dalarna with all of its iron and copper as her personal tax counties. So that's a huge <laughs> chunk of Sweden, meaning the royal taxes in these counties went to Margareta and not to anyone else. This is basically we listed the most important and almost all of the country. Yeah, she she lines her own pockets here. Yeah, because after all, economic power means political and military power too. Margareta isn't just some servant of the people who's only interested in what's good for the counties and countries she ruled. She clearly wants to line her own pockets as well to help her stay in power. That makes her more powerful herself and able to fund mercenaries and other means to keep the nobility in line if something bad was to happen. We saw previously how she took advantage of gains from the loots of the pirates that she supported, and now she's making sure that this political reform she instigates also serves her and future generations of her dynasty. Indeed, I mean, she's she's no angel here. Anyway, the domestic political groundwork is now laid for even more dramatic events to come. But what do the Mecklenburgs, and chiefly Albert and his son Eric, say about this? Well, naturally, they're not very happy. The formal election of Eric to the throne of Denmark and Sweden, along with all these legislative reforms to strengthen the crown's power, is not good for them. It's also going to make it more difficult for them to lay claims to the throne. And finally, it also explicitly goes against the peace treaty they signed that Albert could still call himself king until he failed to repay the Stockholm loan, and nobody else was supposed to appoint any other kings until then. It was supposed to be a bit of a pause on the kinging front. And uh, so he was complaining about that. And Mecklenburg, they still have some old friends that they can call on for help. The pirates. Exactly. The pirates or the Vitali brothers or Vitali Brodina, who we talked about in our last episode. Even if they'd formally lost their support from Mecklenburg, at least in official terms, and in particular the ports of Rostock and Visma, the Hansa had instigated this peace ship fleet to keep them from harassing Hanseatic ships and messing up the Baltic Sea. Despite all of these developments, they're actually still around, or, or at least some of them are. Yeah, like we said last time, their numbers had probably decreased with pirates going back to their work before pirating or settling down on land somewhere with their profits. Furthermore, these days, the remaining pirates were much more of a gang of free and independent pirates uh, pirating against anyone rather than these state-backed pirates with a specific opponent to target. Yeah, although some of them, like we said in the last episode, just did what they want anyway, with pirates gonna pirate. True. But in general, they're much more... Uh, they're more self-employed rather than employed at the moment. Indeed. 
And because they're self-employed, there's no real structure to them, but a pirate of German origin called Aren Stierka was a sort of unofficial leader or figurehead. Probably because he was the most powerful or experienced or had done something really cool that they all looked up to, that he was he was up there. They'd also moved further north in the Baltic Sea, which we mentioned briefly last time, and even had some proper bases in Finland and the county of Helsingland. The pirates built rudimentary castles here too, so they weren't listening to Margareta's rule about not building any new castles. <laughs> in the autumn of 1396, they built Korsholm Castle in Österbotten in Finland, and in Sweden they built Stiersholm by Ongerman River and Gadeboi by Garvla River. As a matter of fact, through these castles, the pirates controlled much of the taxation north of the Dalelven River in Sweden and over in Finland, which we know are areas where the Swedish state had a lot less formal control anyway, but this is still pretty bold. Yeah, it's pre- pretty impressive. It's actually a bit of a pirate-run state. And that means that these pirates are by no means gone when Mecklenburg decides to resume their all-out fight with Margareta. And they decided that Gotland is going to be the place to see this fight out. After all, we know that the status of Gotland has been a bit of a special case following the Treaty of Lindholmen. For three years, it was going to be left the way it was, meaning that Mecklenburg held on to Visby with its large German population, while the rest of the island remained under Swedish rule meaning it was under Margareta's rule. Margareta knew that some funny business was likely going to be stirred up by the Mecklenburgs, despite the treaty, so she made the nobleman Sven Sturra the royal official on Gotland, representing her. But when a Mecklenburg army, under the command of Albert San Eric, landed to plunder the island and conquer the Gotlandic countryside in the summer of 1396, Sven thought leading the resistance to this was going to be too much trouble, so he just swapped sides and joined them after a, a bit of a short battle, but nothing serious. In fact, his change of heart is so complete, he'll go on to become a feared Vitaly pirate in the years to come, and this is the start of Gotland becoming a real pirate base sponsored by Mecklenburg. Yeah, Sven has a real change of heart. No one's quite sure why he changes sides, though. Historians have speculated that maybe he felt he wasn't getting enough resources from Margareta to actually hold Gotland, or maybe there were financial incentives, maybe he had debts or had made investments that needed money to be paid for. Maybe he just didn't want to fight and die for something other than his own bank balance, you know? We'll never know. And the situation on Gotland and the treason of Sven Sturga just confirms to Margareta and her allies that they cannot rest assured in their position. Scandinavia, and especially the waters of the Baltic Sea, is very much a volatile area in this time. We can see from another example just how volatile this is in the midsummer of 1396. A group of ships leave Kalmar under the leadership of the commander of Kalmar Castle, and this is a Dane called Anders Jakobson. Their destination is Gotland, where they're going to bring supplies and lend assistance to Sven Sturra in his fight against Mecklenburg, because this is just before Sven gives up and swaps sides, obviously. 
As they pass an area which is full of loads of cliffs at the southern tip of Gotland, they run into a fleet of Hanseatic war vessels who proceed to attack them. Some of the ships in the group from Kalmar are boarded and even taken, whilst others, including the one that carried Commander Anders Jakobsen, escaped. The sailors on board the captured ships are decapitated and thrown in the water. <laughs> when news about this reaches the Swedish and Danish councils, they naturally turn to the Hansa to ask what on earth is going on. The Hansa reply that no, it was the ships from Kalmar that attacked them, not the other way around. Commander Jakobsen, he refuted this and was backed up by the town council of Kalmar, who were themselves affiliated to the Hansa. Uh, People are clearly very jittery and nervous when they're out at sea, especially around Gotland. Yeah, so it's the Hansa's word against Kalmar, who's also part of the Hansa. And Margareta and her confidence decide that to resolve this situation, she's going to invite the Hanseatic towns involved in this, which was mainly Lübeck and Danzig, to a meeting that she's planning to have in Kalmar. Oh yes, we've already teased about this a bit. Uh, it's planned for the summer of 1397. Not The meeting's not primarily to sort out a quarrel with the Hansa over some incident at sea, but it would be great nonetheless if some Hansa people were there so that they could see what's about to happen and see just how powerful she is and how powerful King Eric is. But before we finish this episode and prepare to talk about that meeting in the next episode, we need to quickly look at a few other things the Mecklenburgs are up to, because there are essentially two things happening more or less at the same time. There is, because whilst Margareta's subjects are busy arranging the chairs and ordering the canapes for the meeting in Kalmar, a fleet led by Erik of Mecklenburg is attacking Stockholm. Wow, that's pretty intense. <laughs> Stockholm, of course, is under the control of the Hansa. They assumed this caretaker role of the city for three years after the Treaty of Lindholmen, whilst everyone was waiting to see if Albert could fork out the bail money demanded for the city or if it would fall into Margareta's hands. Exactly, and so the Hansa had actually been warned about Eric of Mecklenburg's attack and Stockholm was ready to fight. Hanseatic records revealed what happened when the ships reached the town. The captain of Stockholm Castle and the town councillors had received letters demanding that provisions be sent out to the fleet. When this demand was obviously rejected, the Mecklenburgs sent delegates to request a meeting, and as a result, the two sides met to negotiate on a small island outside of Stockholm. The Mecklenburg fleet demanded free access to the town. This was naturally rejected, as was their repeated demands for food supplies. They were really suspicious this was clearly an attack. They weren't come just to, oh, can we buy some burgers or something? They were there to, to fight if they could. Eventually, the Mecklenburg party asked for permission to buy what they needed in the town, but the Hansa considered even this to be far too risky. As it was practically impossible to take Stockholm by force, and they would need some sort of sneaky way in, now this was rejected, the Great Fleet had to sail away without having accomplished anything, really. Wow, so it was much ado about nothing, really, in the end. 
Yeah, pretty much. And it's actually quite interesting how the Hansa leaders of Stockholm found that the Mecklenburg fleet was coming to attack and not just to buy burgers. The warning came from a priest to one of the Hanseatic representatives on the city council, who was called Albert Russa. At first, the priest had asked cautiously, is the castle guarded? And Albert Russa relates, Then I said to him, Dear friend, if you have heard of any evil, then please tell me. And then he answered that he was not allowed to say anything. But he kneeled down and put two fingers on the floor and said, By this stone I swear, God and the saints help me, that Stockholm has been betrayed. And he raised his arms to heaven and said, May God help me in my last hour. It is true what I have told you. But he wouldn't tell us any more. <laughs> and that's a bit odd and more than a bit cryptic, but I guess it did the job of placing Stockholm on alert for the attackers. Yeah, I mean, if you say Stockholm has been betrayed, that's kind of all you need to know, really. <laughs> but yes, that's a, a relatively amusing story about a priest getting cold feet and giving up the invasion plans. Now, Margareta and young King Eric is having a bit more luck coming their way. Not only had Stockholm avoided a takeover by Mecklenburg, but they're also getting ready for their big meeting in Kalmar. Not only was Stockholm avoiding takeover by Mecklenburg just as they're getting ready for their big Kalmar meeting, but just a few weeks later, on the 26th of July 1397, Eric Mecklenburg, who just tried to take the city, dies at Klinterholm Castle. What? That's a surprise. Yeah, everybody's dying early in this time period. Now, some sources say he died from the plague, but nobody's really sure. And with his sudden death, the threat from Mecklenburg changed character. It became less urgent when Eric, who sort of represented the next generation of Mecklenburg rulers, went away. His widow hands over the command of Gotland to the traitor Sven Sturer, who will most certainly come back in our story, and he's still on Mecklenburg's side. And this sort of leaves the Mecklenburgers with just Duke Albert III, old King Albert, who was about 60 at this point, and his nephew Duke John IV. But also, drumroll, a new Albert. <laughs> That's right, because Duke Albert has actually just remarried and has had time to have another child, who the couple surprisingly named Albert. And minor spoilers, not really a surprise, this child will become Albert V of Mecklenburg at some point in the future. So old King Albert had a child in his 60s. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, why not? Especially when all your heirs are dying, you need to repopulate the Mecklenburg nobility. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Uh, who am I to judge Albert of Mecklenburg's life in the late 1300s? And for now, the scene is all set for the big meeting in Kalmar. Yes, and that's what we're pretty much going to spend all of next episode talking about, so it shows you it's going to be pretty big. But before we go, we'd like to read out a lovely five-star review, or actually two of them, that we recently got from Apple Podcasts. What's the first one? Yes, the first one is from John Nielsen in Aurora, Colorado, who says, Love, 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 but so sorry to have caught up. As an American, I find it interesting to imagine what my family could have been up to prior to coming to the States. 
My mum was a Swede and my dad a Dane, so I find the smattering of the two cultures engaging. I found the podcast as I was getting ready for a holiday in Skåne, Halland, Östergötland, Kronoberg and Stockholm. My family originates from Markaryd and Motala Bonabruk. I wish I would have found the podcast earlier. As a student of Swedish, I love the phrases of the episodes and now find myself using them and asking Swedish relatives, is that a thing? Elsa and Chris are entertaining and engaging with a passion for history. I love the detail and enthusiasm they bring. I am very disappointed to have caught up in just a couple of months' time of listening to all episodes. I can't wait for the next episode to drop. Wow, thank you, John, for writing that amazing review and for your five stars. Hopefully you'll have or have had a great holiday over in Sweden and that you don't mind waiting two weeks now for every episode. Uh, hopefully uh, you like us so much that the two-week break isn't too much of a pain, even though I know how frustrating it is when you're waiting for new podcasts and new episodes and you want to see that notification or the download appear in your in your phone or wherever you listen. Well, good things come to those who wait or whatever the saying is. That's very true. And we had another quick review to read out too. I love it. Five stars. This is a lovely duo and I look forward to the Great Northern War during Charles XII's time from Tsar Power or Palmavaz via Apple Podcasts. So I think that's going to be one of the guys from Tsar Power who we played a uh, promo for recently and we've been loving the recap that they're doing from some of the stuff that we covered earlier on in the podcast when we talked about people like Olga of Kiev and Svatislav and all those crazy stuff. So if you haven't listened to the first few episodes that Tsar Power have released, definitely go and give them a listen yeah thank you czar power and thank you john for the reviews and if you like listening to us then please consider following their example and write a review it helps us get noticed and it warms our hearts or you can give us a five-star rating on Spotify without even uh, giving a review. You just scroll down if you're listening on your phone and tap the five-star button, which is really cool now. And uh, you can also get in touch on email, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. Message us on Facebook or Twitter. Or check out our website, a flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where you find loads of family trees to keep track of who's who in the dynastic jungle that is medieval Scandinavia. There's also some maps there, and we post all of our sources if you want to do some reading yourself. And the list of all the Swedish phrases we've covered so far on the podcast is also on there. So if you're like John and you want to incorporate them in your uh, day-to-day speaking, you can read up on them there. And I can promise you, John, all of the phrases we use are real things. I appreciate that you want to confirm with your Swedish relatives, but they definitely are. Yeah, some of them might not be very common nowadays, but they were a thing, at least. For sure. Uh, But for now, all that remains is to say bye-bye and see you next time. Hey, Dor.